after you graduated college, you went to Alabama to march with Dr. King, eventually becoming a worker in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Do you remember the very first time you met uh, Dr. King? The very first time I had uh, was a student at North Carolina A&T, and I was on the way to give a speech at his college, Morehouse, and he was coming through the airport on the way to get his Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. And wow. he astonished me, stunned me because he saw me. He called my name. Wow! I had been arrested in Greensboro, North Carolina. He knew he knew about that scene very well. I was, you know, needed to say overwhelmed, and congratulated him on receiving what he went off on off to get his Nobel Peace Prize. And then I left the next year and went to, came to grad school at Chicago Theological Seminary, at University of Chicago. And uh, Dr. King went on to Selma eventually. And when the goings got hot, he called for seminary students to come meet him in Selma. And I left Chicago Theological Seminary and went to Selma. And we hooked up there and stayed hooked up until he was killed in Memphis in 68. Yeah, I was going to say, you formally started working for Dr. King after grad school, and, and you worked in that inner circle for nearly three years. It, that must have been quite surreal. I mean, even looking back at it today, wouldn't you say, Reverend Jackson? Yeah, you know, the mention of Dr. King does not commonly thought. Dr. King finished high school at 15. He finished college at 19. He finished seminary at 22 and got his PhD at 26. An utterly brilliant man whose coverage corresponded with his brilliance. But he also had a worldview. He had a worldview of reconciliation and not retribution. Uh, he saw nonviolence as a way of life as well as a tactic. And he believed that people put their bodies on the line and use and, and choose to learn to live together, not simply die apart. We could become a better people. And so that kind of philosophy was very appealing to me then and now. Well, and he became you became such an integral part of what was happening in Chicago. So just 11 days after Dr. King's 37th birthday and coming off the history-making triumphs in Birmingham and Selma that laid the groundwork for the passage of the Civil Rights Act of, ni- of 1964 and a year later, the Voting Rights Act, Dr. King had come to Chicago to make the city the next proving ground for his nonviolent revolution to help eradicate that system which promoted the further colonization of thousands of blacks within a segregated environment. And you were a big part of what was happening here in the city at that time. Well, Chicago, blacks could not live uh, west of um, Halstead. We hemmed up in these ghettos. And, and, and you know, you you look at the people on the streets who were throwing rocks at us, and one that hit Dr. King in, in the head with the brick, who called us nasty names. Those kids were, were the victims. The real villains were the politicians who gerrymandered black and white to live in separate ways and be afraid of each other. It was banks that would not lend insurance companies that would not insure, and brokers who did what you call blockbusting. Those kids were victims of the racism being taught by the adults. And yet we we have made a big decision, and I, and I have spoken more and more. We've learned to survive apart. We must now learn a, a bigger lesson, learning to live together, as brothers and sisters and not die apart as fools. Um, the day he passed away, the day he was killed, what do you remember about the details of that day? You were with Dr. King. Oh, boy. Uh, he had come to Memphis, and um, they held the plane up because he had been threatened. Uh, they, they thought there may be a bomb on the plane, but the plane finally came in. The picture of Dr. King and Hosea Williams and Abernathy and I walking on the, on the balcony uh, the day before he was killed. The day that he was killed, uh, I had taken a group down from Chicago, Ben Branch and Wayne Bennett and some of the musicians, to sing them that night at the Mason Temple Church rally.
we were coming across the courtyard, and Dr. King said, Jesse, you're always late. You don't even have one tie. I said, Dr. King, you know you're an hour late. He laughed, because he was always an hour late. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, you don't even have one tie. I said, Dr. King, the prerequisite for eating is an appetite, not a tie. He said, you're crazy. And we laughed. He went up and said to Ben Branch, please play my favorite song tonight. Uh, precious Lord, he had heard being played on the saxophone. He had seen mm-hmm. yes, or oh, maybe a couple of weeks before. He raised his head and pow! It, the bullet hit him in the neck and severed his tie and blew his heart out. And he was dead. And we we all gathered around and began to pray. And Doctor Abner was saying, "Rand Martin, don't leave us now." And but he was dead upon impact. And I got up and called Mrs. King and said, "I was living. I was standing next door to." him at the at Lorraine Motel I said uh, Mrs. King uh, I couldn't I couldn't quite see what I had seen I said Dr. King has been shot I think in the shoulder but please come she said I'll come as quick as I can she was lying in bed reading the Bible I think and I guess in seven eight minutes the wife service called and said he was dead he was a he was one of those moments and a kind of pain in your gut you just never ever forget. I don't like to talk about it, but I cannot avoid thinking about it almost in some way or another every day. 